Chapter 4. Who owns discipline? First, do you dare to discipline? Second, if you do dare, will the state continue to allow you to punish your children? Don't be too quick to answer these questions until you've heard the horrifying experience of Paul Snyder, told by John Whitehead in his excellent book, Parents' Rights. Mr. Whitehead is a constitutional lawyer. I have thought it prudent to quote him word for word. Understand, I am not making up any of this. My concerns are based on a frightening legal precedent. Writes Lawyer Whitehead, quote, On June the 18th, 1973, Paul Snyder took his 15-year-old daughter Cynthia to the Youth Services Centre of the Juvenile Department of King County Superior Court in Washington. For some time, Cynthia had rebelled against her parents. As one court explained the situation, Cynthia's parents, being strict disciplinarians, placed numerous limitations on their daughter's activities, such as restricting her choice of friends and refusing to let her smoke, date or participate in certain extracurricular activities within the school, all of which caused Cynthia to rebel against their authority. Mr and Mrs Snyder hoped that the juvenile court commissioner would resolve the family dispute by admonishing Cynthia regarding her responsibilities to her parents. Cynthia was placed in a receiving home. A month later, however, Cynthia, with the help of caseworkers of the Department of Social and Health Services, filed a petition in court alleging that she was a dependent child under state law. The law defined a dependent child as one under 18 years of age who has no parent, guardian or other responsible person or who has no parent or guardian willing to exercise or capable of exercising proper parental control or whose home, by reason of neglect, cruelty or depravity of his parents or either of them or on the part of his guardian or on the part of the person in whose custody or care he may be or for any other reason, is an unfit place for such a child. Next, Cynthia was placed in the temporary custody of the Department of Social and Health Services, and an attorney was appointed her by the court. On October the 12th, approximately five months after the Snyders contacted the juvenile department, the Superior Court found no parental unfitness. The court ordered Cynthia to be returned to her parents' custody, Cynthia remained with her parents for approximately one month. After more confrontations at home, she went to Youth Advocates, a group which assists troubled juveniles. From there, she was directed to the Youth Services Centre. On November 21, 1973, a state employee of the Youth Services Centre filed a petition in court which alleged that Cynthia was incorrigible as defined by the law. Under this provision, a dependent child is one under 18 years of age who is incorrigible, that is, who is beyond the control and power of his parents, guardian or custodian by reason of the conduct or nature of said child. Cynthia, as a result of this petition, was placed in a foster home. A hearing was held several days later in which the court held that Cynthia was incorrigible. The case was appealed to the Washington Supreme Court. The Washington Supreme Court Finding a total collapse in the parent-child relationship, the court ruled the girl 
incorrigible. Who owns discipline? Discipline entrusted to the parents. Have you been able to follow what happened in the Snyder case? The awful parents who did not want their child to smoke and of all things dared to limit their daughter's activities were ruled unfit. So the girl and the state's officials bent the law to remove her from the parents' discipline. When one court ruled that the parents were not unfit and that Cynthia be returned, the girl and the state officials changed their strategy. They found Cynthia incorrigible so that she could flee from her parents. This is a complete perversion of biblical law. It is also a perversion of American civil law. It has been going on for a generation or more, quietly, and parents are unaware of the change. Then, one day, reality rushes in. The Bible teaches that God entrusts the parents with the authority to discipline. Here we see the fourth principle of the biblical covenant, sanctions. Parents are given the responsibility to apply sanctions to their children, punishments and rewards. Should the parents find it necessary to turn the child over for the discipline of the state, the civil magistrates are supposed to support this family discipline, not attack it. Sure, there are exceptions. Parents have no legal immunity if they threaten the lives of their children. The family isn't autonomous from God's law. Nothing is autonomous from God's law, but short of life-endangering physical abuse or such perversities as forcing children into immoral and illegal activities, the state should not get involved with the family's disciplining of children until the parents invite them. Also, if a child, in other words, has committed an adult crime, then of course an adult penalty should be meted out for the adult offence. Normally, however, in the case of teenage rebellion, the parents are entitled to turn their own children over first. Here is what Moses says, quote, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city and to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil person from among you, and Israel shall hear and fear. End quote. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21. These words may seem hard to us in our modern society. Keep in mind two important points. First, this law limits the family. R.J. Rushtuni, in his excellent book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, notes that the ancient pagan world allowed the family to execute its own members. See also Carl Zimmerman, Family and Civilization, New York, Harper and Brothers, 1974, pages 359 to 383. Biblical law, however, limits the extent to which the family should apply discipline. The power of execution is given to the other members of society and only through the civil government. The family controls the rod 
until it threatens to become a sword execution. On the other hand, this limitation on the family's authority in the long run can protect families from rule by a criminal class. Again, we return to Rashtuni's brilliant insights. He further argues that, quote, a family turning over its son to the law will turn over anyone, end quote, page 187. So, for the family to protect itself from a criminal class, it must allow the state to punish its own delinquent children. It must honour God's law before it honours bloodlines or family name. God's name and reputation are more important. Just about anyone who is trying to deal with someone else's children in their church, youth organisation, etc. knows that most parents protect their children, even when they are wrong. Ironically, this kind of family protection leads to its own abuse. In particular, the family ends up being abused by the state when it attempts to offset statism with familism. Such has been the case in our society. Today, the state deals with everything except immorality precisely because the family is unwilling to allow its own to be punished for wrongdoing. In other words, the family wants to place itself above the law. Second, the death penalty is only mandatory in the case of one capital offence, murder. There are other capital crimes. Adultery is one of them. Leviticus 18, 20. Adultery is not always punishable by death, even though the Bible allows for this punishment at the request of the injured spouse. Matthew says, quote, Joseph was a just man and minded to put Mary away privately. End quote. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. He was just and able to avoid the death penalty. Obviously, the offence of adultery did not require capital punishment in this case. As mentioned, the only exception to the not-mandatory principle is murder. Why? Death is the only appropriate restitution in the event of homicide. So, the incorrigible teenager is not necessarily put to death in every case, only in an unreformable one, probably where extreme violence would be involved. We should also keep in mind that before Christ comes in history, redemption is not fully at work. The death penalty was to be more rigidly applied. But after the death of Christ, the possibility of reform is greater. A Christian approach to incorrigible teenagers should lessen the need for the death penalty. A non-biblical, humanistic approach, children will be children, is guaranteed to increase the need for the death penalty, if not when they are children, then later, when they become murderers. The state should uphold the law of God in the family. Parents are not unreasonable when they expect their children, especially teenagers, to obey. Parents are not over-demanding when they demand that their children stay sober and stay away from drunkenness and drugs. Too often, however, when the state is appealed to, it assumes the role of parent. In the Bible, the state carries out a penalty for the parents that they were not allowed to enforce. Execution. The family is not a servant of the state. The state is to be a servant of the family. Who owns discipline? Ultimately, 
God does, as we have seen in every area, yes, yes, he has entrusted it to the parents, but we should keep our arguments straight. Parents are given the power to punish, but the Bible lays down strict guidelines. God entrusting parents with discipline in the home does not mean they can do anything they want. There are five biblical methods. Let us consider them. Biblical Methods of Home Discipline The Bible reasons from God's methods for dealing with his people. Since parents represent God to the children, they should look to God's example. One biblical writer says, quote, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Discipline and love are not mutually exclusive. Discipline is the outworking of love. As God disciplines his children, so parents should punish theirs. God disciplined Christ on the cross for the sake of rebellious mankind. This should point to the link between love and punishment. God uses five methods. Verbal discipline. God would speak to his people from the mountain or through the prophet. When Israel sinned against God, prophets would be sent to chastise Israel verbally. This is apparent in all their ministries. They brought warnings and rebukes with the hope that nothing more would need to be done to change the direction of Israel. So there is a place for verbal admonition and correction in dealing with children. As God spoke sternly, so parents should know how and when to speak with sternness. Denial Discipline In the curse section of Deuteronomy 28, God says he will withhold increase in production and wealth if Israel breaks his laws. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 38. When Israel would not enter the promised land, God withheld it from the nation for 40 years. Denial is an effective way to deal with children. My school-age children have to read one book per week and then write a book report during the summer months. Once, the two oldest boys wanted to take a free karate course at the athletic club to which we belong. They were told that they could go if their report for that week was finished. They didn't finish, so they didn't get to go. Withdrawal Discipline David feared one thing more than anything else, the withdrawal of God's hand, Psalm 119. Sometimes God would pull back from his people to show them what it would be like to be totally cut off. Thus, sending a child to his room or from the dinner table can be an appropriate way of punishment. This can be a dangerous method. When alone, the child will have a tendency to feel sorry for himself. So, a parent should watch for this negative reaction and be prepared to deal with it. Corporal Discipline Deuteronomy 28, to which I just referred, says God would bring boils and other physical calamities on Israel if she persisted in rebellion. When this principle is applied to family discipline, the Bible refers to the rod. The rod became the preeminent symbol for discipline. Why? 
the rod represented a zone of authority. There are different Hebrew words for rod, but the dominant one which controls the basic word field is matech from natach, which means to strike. The matech was made from a branch out of a tree, thus the matech was an extension of the tree. Theologically, this is quite important. The tree in scripture represents God's zone of authority, life and protection. As long as one lived under God's tree, he had God's authority, life and protection. The Bible constantly alludes to this imagery by describing the life of blessing as a tree planted by the water, Psalm 1. By the number of leaders who appear under a tree, Judges chapter 4 verses 4 and following, and by comparing the kingdom of God to a tree, Luke chapter 13 verse 19. Therefore, the rod is to be an extension of God's authority. As a matter of fact, how the parent uses the rod says much about his view of God and conveys a whole theology to the child. For this reason, the rod must be used properly. 1. Failure to use the rod means there is no hell, judgment, pain or evil consequences for doing wrong. God becomes Santa Claus instead of our righteous and just sovereign. Moreover, failure to use the rod is the easiest course of action. When a parent disciplines his child, he is dealing with a part of himself, since the child is an extension of him, a sinful extension in this case. It reminds us of the ultimate punishment we deserve, death. This death is only symbolic, thanks to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The Proverbs say, quote, Do not hold back discipline from the child, although you beat him with the rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. End quote. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 13 and 14. A child without discipline becomes a person without internal checks and balances. He will grow up and not be able to handle pressure or be able to check his own sinful behaviour. The Proverbs are right when they say, quote, Spare the rod and spoil the child. End quote. 2. The rod is used instead of the hand because it is not the parent's authority which is being implemented. It is important, therefore, that a parent not deal with his own frustration when disciplining. If the parent's authority is a reflection of God's authority system, and it should be, then discipline should be for violating God's authority. The natural tendency is not to use the rod. The child will understand this when he grows up. The Proverbs say that failure to use the rod means that the parent hates his own child. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 24. When a parent uses the rod, he shows his love. In our modern mentality, we hear the opposite. 3. Because the use of the rod is so closely tied to the child's salvation, it is good to pray with the child after spanking has been applied. The child should confess his sin and the parents should pray that God will use this discipline to sanctify the child. 4. The rod should be used in private. Public flogging was the worst form of humiliation and should be and could only be carried out by civil magistrates. Number 5. The rod should only be applied to the 
behind portions of the child. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 13. A parent should never strike a child in the front or the face. Why? The face is the place of glory in Scripture. Whippings in the face destroy dignity, and this is not the purpose of discipline. Spitting in the face was allowed only in one instance in Scripture. The childless wife of a deceased man could spit in the face of his brother if he was required to perform the office of the leveret to marry her and father children in the deceased man's name, and he refused. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 9. This was a major sin in the Old Testament covenant line. 6. Parents should watch for sulking. This can be a very effective passive form of rebellion. The Bible says that we are to be obedient with joy. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 47. It is a serious problem which expresses rebellion in a bad attitude. Disinheritance discipline. The fifth method of discipline, and the most severe, was disinheritance, or cutting off from the family. This method is seen in God's dealing with Cain. Cain was driven away from the family and the people of God. Genesis chapter 4 verse 14. In the New Testament, we see this method of discipline in the parable of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15 verses 11 and following. When a child grows into his teenage years and becomes incorrigible, even influencing other children the wrong way, this may be the only recourse a parent has to save his household. Of course, the child should be welcomed back if he wants to come back and live by the law of the household. This is the dramatic application of the parable of the prodigal son. This method could be applied to an adult member of the family. There was a Christian family where the father left his wife of 25 years, committed adultery and left the faith. His daughter was a teenager when he left. In a few years, the daughter fell in love and began to plan the wedding. The father wanted to participate in the wedding and give her away. This was unnerving to everyone. The mother was particularly upset. Should this father have been allowed to participate in the joy of Christian marriage as long as he was unrepentant? No. As a matter of fact, when the family would not allow him to come to the wedding, he repented. It helped him to see his eternal destiny apart from repentance. These five methods of discipline provide a parent with a graduated system. The wisdom of child-rearing is knowing when and how to apply them. Discipline is critical to the establishment of the biblical covenant, for without it, there is no law. Notice what parents are not able to do. No torturing, nothing which is life-threatening. The Bible protects the child as well as stipulates the methods of discipline. What if parents abuse their rights? They can be prosecuted, but they should not be taken to court for obeying God's law like the Snyders. If we had a biblical society, this state would punish those who break the law of God. I am sorry to say that we have fallen from grace. Summary. There is hope for rebellious men because there is a clear message from God. He disciplines those whom he loves. He loves this nation, so he is disciplining it and will discipline it. 
The principle in this chapter has been that discipline is the Lord's entrusted to parents in the home. Entrusted implies trusteeship. 1. I introduced the discipline issue with the Snyder case. Paul Snyder was not able to discipline his daughter effectively because she found protection by the state. This is nothing short of an open attack on the family. Mr. Snyder was in no way abusing his daughter. He was simply doing what he was supposed to under biblical law. Number two, God entrusts the responsibility of discipline to the parents. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 18 to 21 was used. The specific kinds of discipline that parents can use are a. Verbal discipline b. Denial discipline c. Withdrawal d. Corporal e. Disinheritance Other forms of discipline are given to the state and the church. I have already mentioned this, but what the Lord gives to the family should be upheld by the state and the church. In the next chapter, I want to turn our attention to the inheritance. Who owns it? Why does the state try to keep families from laying up a large estate? How do I know that this is the case? Do you want your children to carry on with the faith and the funds you've handed down to them? Let's read on.